Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys. Part 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, A Midsummer Ramble Through the Dolomites. By Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 5. Cortina to Pieve di Cadore, Part 1. The morning of the Sagro dawned to a prodigious ringing of church bells and firing of musketry. There were masses going on in both churches from 5 a.m. till midday. The long street and the piazza by the post office presented one uninterrupted line of booths. There were hundreds of strangers all over the town, hundreds in the churches. Every house seemed to have suddenly become an albergo. Every window, every balcony, every doorway was crowded. The acrobats paraded Cortina again this brilliant Sunday morning about nine o'clock, and the discord of their drums and trumpets went on all day long, to the accompaniment of the church bells and the intermittent firing of the sharpshooters down at the tier by the riverside. What a motley crowd! What a busy, cheerful scene! What a confusion of voices, languages, music, bells, and gunpowder! Here are Austrian Tyrolese from Talbach, Inichin and the Sexton Thal, who speak only German, Italian Tyrolese from the Longarone side, who speak only Italian, others from the border villages who speak both, or a patois compounded of both, which is quite unintelligible. The costumes of these mountain folk are still more various than their tongues. The women of San Vito wear breastplates of crimson or green satin, banded with broad gold braid, and ornamented with spangles. The women of the Pusterthal walk about in huge, turban-like headdresses, as becoming and quite as heavy as the bearskins of the grenadiers. The men of Flisht are lost in their enormous black boots, modeled apparently on those of the French position of the last century. Here, too, are old women in homemade otter-skin hats, high in the crown and ornamented like a footman's with a broad gold band, and bold Jaegers with wide leather belts, green braces, steeple-crowned hats and guns slung across their shoulders, looking exactly like Caspar in Der Freischutz. The wonderful damsels of Lavinalungo, whom we met yesterday on the pass, are also present in great force, but the prevailing costume is, of course, that of the Ampezzo. It consists of a black felt hat with a bunch of feathers at the side, a black cloth skirt and bodice trimmed with black velvet or black satin loose white sleeves, a large blue apron that almost meets behind, and a little colored handkerchief around the neck. Simple, sober, and becoming, this dress suits young and old alike, and the round hat sets off a pretty face very agreeably. Learning that the musical mass was to begin at eleven a.m., we took care, as we thought, to be at the church doors in good time, but at a quarter before the hour found the steps crowded outside and barely standing room within. The whole body of the church was one mass of life, color, bare heads, and upturned faces. Men and women alike held their hats in their hands. Three priests at three different altars performed mass simultaneously. The organist played his best, assisted, however, by the Cortina brass band with an effect that was almost maddening. One trombone player, in particular, an apoplectic, red-faced man in gray flannel shirt-sleeves, blue as if bent on blowing his brains out. Now and then, however, when the organist had an unaccompanied interlude, 
or the choir-master a few phrases of solo, there came a lucid interval when one breathed again. But these respites were few and brief, and except during the sermon the brass band that morning had quite the best of it. The old curé preached, attired in magnificent vestments of white and gold brocade. His sermon turned upon faith, and he illustrated his text oddly enough by references to all kinds of matters, in which faith is not generally supposed to bear a leading part. The soldier, the artist, the lawyer, the man of science, what could they do, he asked, without faith? Take the soldier, for instance, what is it that inspires him with courage to face the cannon's mouth? Faith. Take the painter. Judge what must have inspired the frescoes and paintings in this very church. Faith. Think of the patience and labor required in cutting of the Suez Canal. What supported those workmen through their trying task? Faith. Look again at the Montsensis Tunnel. Think of how those engineers began at opposite sides of that great mountain, and, at length, after years of labor, met in the midst of it. To what power must we attribute such perseverance crowned with such success? To the supreme and vivifying power of faith. Of such quality was the good man's discourse. He preached in Italian, and paused after every peroration to mop his bald head with a blue cotton pocket handkerchief. It was a hot day, and his eloquence quite exhausted him. Coming out of the church, we take a turn round the fair. Here are booths for the sale of everything under the sun, of hats, umbrellas, pipes, spectacles, pots, pans, and kettles, tanned leather, untanned leather, baskets, wooden ladles, boots and shoes, blankets, homespun frieze and linen, harness, scythes, tinwares, woodenwares, nails, screws, and carpenter's tools, knives, forks, and spoons, crockery, toys, crucifixes and prayer-books, braces, garters, pocket-books, steel chains, sleeve buttons and stationery, live poultry, fruit, vegetables, cheap jewelry, ribbons, stuffs, seeds, bird-cages, and cotton umbrellas of many colors. Here, too, is a stall for the exclusive sale of watches, from the massive silver turnip to the little flat Geneva timekeeper of the size, and probably also of the value, of an English florin. Near the church door stands a somewhat superior booth, stocked with medieval brasswork, altar candlesticks, patinas, chalices, and the like, while, next in rotation, a grave-looking old peasant presides over a big barrel full of straw and water, round the top of which, in symmetrical array, repose wet stones of all sizes. It is remarkable that there are here no dancing or refreshment booths. The sober Tyrolese do not often dance, unless at weddings, and for meals those who have not brought food with them crowd at midday into the inns and private houses, and there eat with small appearance of festivity. Even the acrobats do not seem greatly to attract them. A large crowd gathers outside the show, and almost fills the piazza in the afternoon, but not many seem to be going in. They are content, for the most part, to listen to the comic dialogue sustained on the outer platform by the clown and Mary Andrew, and prefer to keep their soldi warm in their pockets. Now the writer, knowing from previous experience the unpopularity of the sketcher, steals into corners and behind booths, in order to secure a few notes of costume and character. 
but, being speedily found out and surrounded, is feigned either to use her pencil openly or not at all. The good people of Ampezzo, however, prove to be less sensitive in this manner than the peasants of Italy or Switzerland. They are delighted to be sketched, and come round by dozens, begging to have their portraits taken, and anxious that no detail of costume should be omitted. One very handsome woman of Lavina Lungo, tempted by the promise of a florin, came home with me in order that I might make a careful, coloured study of her costume. She was tall, and so finely formed, that not even that hideous sack and shapeless bodice could disguise the perfection of her figure. As I placed her, so she stood, silent, motionless, absorbed, for more than half an hour. A more majestic face I never saw, nor one so full of a sweet, impenetrable melancholy. Being questioned, she said she was twenty-three years of age, and a farm-servant at Lavinalungo. "'And you are not married?' I asked. "'No, signora.' nor betrothed no signora but that must be your own fault i said she shook her head ah no she replied with a slightly heightened colour our young men do not marry without money who would think of me i am too poor i should have liked to know more of her history but her natural dignity and reserve were such that i felt i must not question her farther the sketch finished she just glanced at it put back the proffered payment, and turned at once to go. The signora was very welcome, she said. She did not wish to be paid. Being pressed, however, to take the money, she yielded, more, as it seemed, through good breeding than from inclination, and so went away, taking the downward path from the back of the house, and going home over the mountain alone. That afternoon Santo Siorpas came again, bringing with him a tall, brown, fair-haired young man of about twenty-eight or thirty, whom he introduced as Signor Giuseppe Guerina. This Giuseppe, he said, was a farmer, lately married, well-to-do, and a nephew of our landlord at the Aquila Nera. Not being a professional guide, he would nevertheless be happy to travel with the signoras, and to be useful to the utmost of his power. He did not profess to know all the country laid down in our scheme, but he would take Santo's written instructions as to routes, inns, mules, guides, and so forth, and he, Santo, did not doubt that we should find Giuseppe in all respects as well fitted for the work as himself. Now Giuseppe's manner and appearance were particularly prepossessing. We liked his simple gravity, the intelligence with which he asked and answered questions, and the interest with which he examined our maps and guidebooks. Preliminaries, therefore, were soon settled. He was to inform himself thoroughly upon all matters connected with the route, and to hold himself in readiness to join us in a day or two. Meanwhile it was agreed that we should pay him at the same rate that we should have paid Santos Siorpas, namely, two and a half florins a day for his wages, and one florin and a half for his food, in all about eight francs, or six and eightpence English, per diem. If at any time we were to travel by any public conveyance, we were of course to pay his fare, but all lodging and other expenses en route were to be defrayed by himself. It may be here observed, once and for always, that a more fortunate choice could not have been made. Faithful, honest, courteous, untiring, intelligent, Giuseppe Guerina, unused as he was to his new office, entered upon his duties as one to the manner born, and left nothing to be desired always at hand, but never obtrusive, 
As economical of our money as he was of his own, he was always thinking for us and never for himself. And so anxious was he that the signoras should see all that was to be seen that, when travelling through a district new to himself, he used to take pains each evening to enter in his pocket-book all such details as he could pick up, in advance, respecting every object of interest which might chance to lie in our way in the course of the next day's journey. He remained with us, as will be seen, throughout this Dolomite tour, and we parted with mutual regret when it ended. Numbers of those who had thronged the fair and the churches all this day went home the same afternoon or evening. As long as daylight remained they could be seen dotting every mountain path, and for hours after all Cortina was in bed, their long, wild, alpine cry rang from hillside to hillside and broke the silence of the night. End of section 10